Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscape's people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. And a particularly warm welcome to our annual end-of-year get-together, where we unwrap a selection box of our favourite clips from the year past, where we reflect on conversations that have stuck in the mind, conversations that have changed our minds, and conversations that have made us smile and occasionally wipe away a little bit of dust stuck in our eyes. I'm here in a cottage near Skelleth Bridge, fire blazing, tea brewing, and I'm in the company of author and illustrator Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. I love the review of the year. This is a wonderful time to reflect on what an amazing year we've had. And secondly, and for our third appearance on our um, end-of-year review, it's Lakeland Walker editor, John Manning. Hello, John. Hiya. How are we doing? I tell you what, it's lovely to be actually in the heart of the Lake District this time. Lovely to be here. And over the next hour and a bit, we'll sift through 22 episodes this year, Mark. Actually, all told, this is number 27. I'm glad that my extensive research has already been undermined. So we'll be talking plums, proms and plumbago. We'll visit Wasdale, the Westmoreland Dales and the wildflower meadows of Mooka. We'll reflect on the lost history of farming and of laudanum addiction among the Lakeland poets. We'll consider why Lakeland holds such a special place in the hearts of so many. And we'll hear from, among others, Joss Naylor, Kathleen Jones, Richard Leaf, Danny Teasdale, Helen Guy, Mark Hatton and John Dunning. But before that, we're going to start where else but with Alfred Wainwright and a fascinating recording with archivist Chris Butterfield and filmmaker Richard Else in those still locked down Zoom days to celebrate the 30th anniversary of AW's passing. So in this little collection of clips here, we'll hear from Richard about the polymath genius and genesis of the guidebooks, about the making of the BBC films and a lovely anecdote about AW's cinematic ambitions. And then we'll hear about Wainwright's remarkable attempt to get presenter Eric Robson sacked. So here we go. Here's Richard Else. I've read many wonderful books, but they might be about the natural history, they might be about archaeology, they might be about landscape use. A.W. has that sort of polymath mind, and he wants to incorporate all of that. And one thing that slightly surprised me was not the research as such, because we know from reading the books how good that is, but I shut myself away in the National Library of Scotland for a number of weeks, uh, where they have a pretty good collection of guidebooks, many of which are totally forgotten. I'm not just talking about Baddeley and the obvious ones. And you could see how Wainwright must have had access, probably through the Kendall Library, to those books. And just as a sort of sidebar to that, after his death, I was given a number of AW's books. And amongst the quite bizarre collection he had was Swiss mountain guides. Well, for a man who'd never actually set foot out of Britain, um, I found that fascinating. So he obviously had that sense of history. There's also light and shade, isn't there? Like any good drama, there's that humour, there's a bit of mischief. And then there's what I'd call the strong authorial voice. 
this is not some bland civil servant writing a book. This is somebody who has, for better or worse, very strong and actually quite fixed opinions. The funniest thing was at the end of the day, I was pretty pleased. It could have been a whole lot worse. The pictures were lovely. We had some great sound. Uh, it, it, it was a decent enough day, although pretty chilly. We got to the Land Rover and AEW turned to me and said, you've not filmed the end yet. And I, <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean, AEW? <laughs> oh, he said, um, I'm with Eric and you walk into the shop and say, Wainwright, it's you. How are you? At which Eric <laughs> would be very surprised and said, I had no idea. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> now, Eric, Eric's not a bad actor, but I thought it would take a Hollywood star to be able to, to pull that one off. The better Eric's questions were, the worse AW's answers were. Because A.W. wanted to be in charge. He wanted to be in control. Um, he'd make Eric earn his money. We'd have the most phenomenal sort of conversations when the camera was off. He'd turn to me and say, so how much does Eric earn? And on one time, uh, as part of the BBC's periodic budget cuts, he took me to one side and he said, <clears throat> he said to me, do we need Eric? I'm sure I could do this. You know, I mean, if, if, if you say we're hard up, I mean, you know, um, why don't we just get rid of him? <laughs> so, muzzle the lapdog. Richard Els there reflecting on some of the conversations he had with Alfred Wainwright. And, well, let's start at the beginning there, Mark. That was your choice about the genesis of the guidebooks. Fascinating. Isn't it just? Yes, he really put some background into them. He loved pen drawing, and he always said that he, doing the ledgers in tidy order was sort of what he was trained to do. But he clearly had skills that were exceptional, right from the word go. And so he would plan things out in fine detail. So he knew where everything would go, and he was good at pre-seeing things and tight descriptions, so he'd know how to shrink things so that they'd fit on the space that he allocated. The sort of things that you'd expect a publisher to have several editors to work their way through and bring down, he was able to do it as a one-off. He certainly knew how to do it, but there again he went to earlier books, as Richard intimated, and in fact, A.W. gave me a book called Swiss Mountain Drawings, which has the most remarkable etchings in it, of different mountains in Switzerland. So there was the Matterhorn, there was climbers like Edward Wimper, but they were all artistically laid out in this big formatted uh, long spine hardback book. And the fact he gave it to me suggested he was trying to give me a little bit of a lead on how you approach the whole thing. In an age of design and visual presentation, he saw the pictures as being fundamental. Most books, a writer is either a writer or an artist. He brought the two together. Fascinating, isn't it? And I think for those of us who love A.W.'s work, it's tempting sometimes, isn't it, to think that these works of art came fully formed. But of course they were inspired and, and fascinating that you 
saw, perhaps one of the works that did inspire him. John, I think when we spoke this time last year, you were getting ready to commission pieces for the Lakeland Walker special edition, really talking about various people's memories of AW and his impact. Yeah, it was looking at his legacy, the legacy he's left. And I think from what Mark's saying there, for all he... uh, dipped into these different influences he distilled the whole into something quite unique that is his legacy the way he brought it all together in a very different way to all these other things that had gone before there's been nothing like it since uh, and it's it's quite telling that there are a few books appearing on the scene that are not just directly influenced by Alfred Wainwright's work, but a deliberate design to uh, to resemble it. You know, I'd hate to use the word plagiarism because into all these things, there's a heck of a lot of work goes in. Mimicking, you might. The mimicking, the borrowing, the style, um, a winning style. We could call it a tribute, or we could call it um, an attempt to create something that might sell a few more copies because it looks like Wainwright. I remember from a podcast that we did earlier this year. And we did um, a podcast relating to the young people of Cumbria for our 50th edition, which was really nice. We turned the stage over to um, three young people. And I remember Matt Sowerby from Kirby Lonsdale, who's a poet, and he said, one of the great challenges you have as a Lake District young poet growing up now is you've got Wordsworth in the background, who, you know, he kind of did it all. He said, that's great in some ways because you've got this amazing legacy to draw on, but it's also a great challenge because how do you ever better that? And I feel Wainwright is the same figure for those of us who try and make walking guidebooks. I say try, I mean, Mark, you've been very successful at this in your career. But I mean, how do you follow that up in a way that's If you want to challenge yourself to do something better, which I think a lot of us creative people want to do, you've got your work cut out, frankly. I think it just demonstrates how rarely it is that people like that come along. You know, there is always this this wave of guidebook writers and what have you, but it's uh, maybe once in every generation or or rarer that one is so outstanding that it's it's head and shoulders above. You know, Wordsworth is one, Wainwright's one. Very few, very few. I think we can acknowledge, can't we, that Wainwright had an exceptional talent for creating these guidebooks. But I think, having listened to Richard's stories there about his um, approach to filmmaking, I think we can say his talents didn't lie in that area. Yes, Richard described him as a polymath, but I think that's probably the wrong word. uh, (laughs) He was good at maths. Exceptionally focused on what interested him and drew from other things to, as I say, to distill that into something different, but... I think the polymath thing might be just a, a little bit too wide-ranging and too yes, incomplete. Yes. He had certain skills, but because he was so insular, he tended to see himself on a personal pedestal. And he thought, I can do everything, and there's nobody to challenge me, so I can keep going. If you want me to do everything, I'll do everything. Which is but, a, re- it's a really funny trait for somebody who's regarded as so reclusive. And, yes. You know, <laughs> I mean, poor old Eric Robson. <laughs> yes. I mean, just the worst job. What you don't want is A, your guests to really not interact with you in any meaningful way, and B, to start telling you what he wants from the script. I mean, just awful. And we really do need to get Eric's side of this story, I think, at some point. We definitely do. I think Eric... I'd love to do a Country Stride podcast with Eric. Eric has long been a great champion for the Lake District and continues to be, which is something to be applauded. Right, well, now for something rather different... This is one of my choices. From Wainwright in Kendall, we're travelling down the road into a snow-blossomed springtime live valley. 
and a conversation with longtime friends and local lads Desmond Holmes and Hartley Trotter. And we've got two clips here. The first discusses the process of picking the damson plum, and a second in which Mark asks whether they'll be retiring. And the first voice you're going to hear is Desmond. Pick them with a ladder and a bucket. A ladder and a bucket? And in the old days, um, they were called plums. The older people never called them damsons, they were plums. Or plums, more correctly. And they were picked with a, a ladder, which locally was called a stee, which it is in Westmoreland. Yes. A Norse stee. word meaning ladder. And so it was a plumbing stee, perhaps 22 rooms. Joiner made tapered special fruit ladders and a bucket, and you got on with it, and you would pick about 20 score a day. Uh, they were measured then in scores of 20 pounds, and they were sold in scores and half scores. Mm. Reason being that pannier system of, of 18 quarts equals 20 pounds. They were picked and then weighed up and uh, collected by the buyers in my time, you know, the jam makers. I started picking damsons when I was about eight year old. You know, you picked a few pounds and your dad give you a few pennies for picking them, but uh, picking uh, people from same as Libby's Milk Factory and uh, some of the bus drivers in Kendall took their annual holidays just to pick damsons. And then during uh, the war, uh, there was a prison of war camp down the valley, wasn't there, Desmond? Yes. Uh, and they used to bring truckloads of prisoners in the morning. There were Italian prisoners, what we had, and uh, picked damsons all day. I don't see much appetite for retirement in either of you. No, we, we can't give up completely. No. <laughs> Wouldn't last long. I remember the local auctioneer, Harold Hodgson, being asked, when are you going to retire? And he said, not for a bit yet, at Varese and D. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well, I think uh, there's an incentive for. Uh, I mean, we live in a beautiful place, uh, and uh, work uh, in this area. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It's Absolutely. a pleasure. Yes. I'd rather C and D, Mark. Yeah, I think it must be a life value thing. Uh, C uh, rather than die, I think. A lovely conversation that. It was this kind of balmy evening, wasn't it? Lovely and, and warm. Sitting out on the patio, um, the smell of the blossom. Just two old friends talking about picking plums. Who would have thought that would make for such an interesting conversation? But I thought it was really, really lovely. And they're not planning to retire, Desmond and Hartley. Mark, John, retirement plans? Uh, I'm not allowed to speak about retirement plans in case one of my clients is listening. <laughs> <laughs> No, I see an endless future. I just want to keep pushing forward and coming up with fresh ideas and I don't see any logic in retirement. I can't stagnate in my head. I've just got to keep moving forward. I love life. I think it was to do with that connection with the land, wasn't it, that it needed looking after. Yeah. And, there's, of course, if that's your view, there is always work to be done. Um, and, of course, both of them, you know, they have their, their dams and orchards and... I think what became really clear from that conversation was they lamented how few there were left. And I think they see that they have a responsibility to continue an important industry in the Lyth Valley. Yes, it's part and parcel of their perception of the valley. 
you can understand. You were enveloped by a wonderful, great green valley that stretched out before you. And you could look up to the fells and they, they talked about going up on the fells. You could see right up to Kentmere and Log Sleddle. And behind them was Whitbarrow, that wonderful limestone upland that, going back to Hearst mentioned, Wainwright loved. And it's a wonderful landscape to explore and to appreciate. And they felt they were part of that landscape. Do you get down that neck of the woods often, John? Uh, Whitbarrow I love, yes. I've been over Whitbarrow. Um, picking slows very near the summit. But Whitbarrow is just a glorious expanse of limestone with all the hawthorn and blackthorn on the summit and those beautiful uh, stands of silver birch. and They're all twisted because the wind's coming straight in off the coast and it gives it a great bleak character that's uh, just relish. Right, well, we're sticking actually in the South Lakes for our next choice. This is one of yours, Mark, and we are travelling to Lancashire, north of the Sands. A summertime seaside walk along the prom in the Victorian resort of Grange over Sands with local historian Nick Thorne. Clare House Lane, there used to be a, a, a quite a big hut at the end of it, not too sure what it was, but... Um, there's uh, old photos with blackboards with the yacht spray being advertised as sailing at two o'clock, which may have been one of those boats you're looking at where they presumably took people out oh. on a little sailing tour across right. the estuary and presumably there were also little dinghies to hire for people to go out rowing. What we didn't mention earlier on about the development of Grange was the health purposes of Grange. So we've got three big hotels. You can see one hotel above the station there, which is called the, uh, the Grange Hotel. That was built with the station. Um, by the railway company and it's designed in the same way as the station and it was effectively you build a railway and then you build things to attract people to use your railway so it's a double-edged benefit and then round the corner there's the Netherwood Hotel um, and they were all hydrotherapy centres so people used to come to Grange for the health benefits they were recommended to come here for the sea air and you can just about see at the very far end of the promenade so the promenade's about a mile long at the very far end there's an iron bridge that goes over the railway um, that's Blaweth Point. And that bridge was originally built for the Netherwood Hotel and it was so people from the private residence could get to the bathing machines which were on the beach here. And so there must have been bathing machines there, probably here, so people could change in comfort. The particular postcard I was referring to a moment ago with the five sailing boats on, the story on the back, this is 1910, and it sums up why people were here. It said, uh, Dear Agnes, hope you're having a nice time. Uh, we leave here tomorrow, for where I don't know. I think I would rather have been in Leeds than here. Excuse the pencil, I am writing this in the waiting room at the station. I am supposed to be on the prom getting the sea breeze. So obviously uh, that is somebody who's been bought here for the sea breeze to get well and they don't really want to be here. They want to be back in the dirty, smoky Leeds. <laughs> so they're sitting indoors at the railway station. And I find that quite funny. Just looking through postcards and old stories, nearly all of them talk about health there's a convalescent home up on the fells um, a lot of people did come here to recover from injuries or ailments um, Meathop, which is the next village round that had a sanatorium so it was, it was a big drive in that that era and that's what partly led to the development of grange as well i think seaside recuperation from days past okay so mark john i challenged the two of you before we got here to um think about a favorite walk of 2021 so, John? We haven't done a lot of walking this last year. Our children have reached an age where every weekend is spent ferrying them to rugby or judo or climbing clubs or whatever. 
Um, we acquired a puppy during the summer, and she's not of an age yet where she can go for more than a mile at a time. I think my favourite walk of the year has been in my backyard onto the summit of Ingleborough, um, which is a regular evening jaunt for a, a good friend of mine in the village uh, and myself. He's a train enthusiast, so he likes to sit on the edge of the plateau with his zoom lens photographing the steam trains coming over Ribblehead Viaduct. And while he's doing that, I scour the summit looking for the prehistoric hut circles, of which there are nearly two dozen on the summit, which you can still make out on the ground. And it's amazing to think that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people cross that plateau every year doing the Three Peaks walk without realising they're walking through the, the centre of some of these very ancient hut circles. Some of them are quite pronounced, they're, they're quite raised off the ground. I would love to know what they were there for. I think everybody would love to know what they were there for. When you think the name Ingleborough tells you about its heritage, that there was always known to be a community of Ingles, ancient British people up there. Which is what we hope. I know some people translate it as angels, as in a peak of the angels, which I think there's another one, Cairn Ingley down in... Is it the Priscellis, Cairn Ingley? Is that right? right. Yeah. Um, now, whether there's any relationship between the people who lived in each area, I don't know. Mark, your favourite walk of 2021? This year has been very much focused on what I've been trying to achieve as a guidebook writer, I still keep looking forward. And uh, we've been putting together a guide to Ullswater area. And we're coming to the fruition of that process. But one of the walks, oh, I've, I've loved them all. I think you have to pick one, I'm afraid. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so the, the one that you forced me into is the circuit of Deepdale. So I went up Arneson Crag, up onto Burks and Gavel Pike up to... Sunday Crag through Deepdale Halls up by Coffer Pike onto Fairfield and Hart Crag and then down the Hearts up above Howe Ridge down to Deepdale Bridge and through by Crookerbeck back to Patterdale. What a fantastic day. Uh, I loved it when I got onto Gavel Pike, for example, because I found a path I didn't know about. Finding new paths are always great. And I bumped into a family who were going the other way from Blackpool, you know me. Whenever I see somebody, I can't resist having a conversation. Here's a question related to the chats that you have on the fells. Why is it, do we think, that you always say hello to people on the fells, but you don't walking down the street? At what distance from the car park is it acceptable to say hello to people? Mm, I don't know where it comes from. I mean, I, when I'm walking around our village, I say hello to everybody, anybody and everybody that I meet. And I think that's how you tell the walkers and the non-walkers apart, because walkers will always say hello back to you. And a lot of the folk who don't really know why they've come to the Orchard Dales, in our case, you know, they don't respond. They'll never look you in the eye. Donkeys years ago, a friend and I, uh, Ian, we walked the, the West Island Way together. And we took the train back home and we got into Leeds and we had some time to kill in Leeds, so we walked around the city centre and we just instinctively said hello to everybody we met in the centre of Leeds. And I'm surprised we weren't beaten up or locked up. People would cross the road to get away from us. It was a really alienating feel. I mean, I guess it's partly tradition, isn't it? It's partly... Nowadays, I think it's partly you're in a good mood. You're in a good mood. I think, yes. I think there's also an element of, you know, when you're out there, you can be in some very remote places. Mm. 
Uh, it's in your own interests to befriend everybody, to be friendly. Yes. You know, if, if you need help and you've upset somebody earlier, then it might not be forthcoming. I think because of that sense of isolation, there is a welcome in seeing other human beings. Yes, very much so. I, yeah. I certainly, and again, you know, talking about something like the Pennine Way would be a good example. You're in remote, lonely country. Actually seeing somebody is great for both of you. And now there may be an element of self-preservation there, but I think often it's just that human instinct, isn't it? That yeah. It's company. And the shared experience as well. And the shared experience. I have a friend who's um, uh, Chris Townsend who, who writes about gear for the Great Outdoors magazine. Uh, very well-known, respected backpacker um, who's done many of very long American trails. And you can tell when he gets back from one of these trails, he's spent months in his own company. And he just chatters away for hours and hours and hours, a bit like Mark, really. Never can't shut him up. <laughs> <laughs> and I do feel it's a great equaliser when you're up on the hills. Yes, very much. Everybody's the same. We're all in the same boat. Well, returning to uh, favourite walks, I'm going to give you mine now. And I've been checking... Mark's instructions for the uh, Oldswater Walking Companion. Are you going to give him marks out of ten, Dave? <laughs> They're more destructions. <laughs> but I tell you what, for me, I think Oldswater's always had this slightly ambivalent place in my uh, Lakeland love. I've always been attracted, I think, to the more remote valleys or the more unexpected ones. I suppose I'm thinking about things like Dentdale, you know, things that we don't really associate with Lakeland particularly. But... It was a total rediscovery for me getting back into Oldswater. And we've mapped so many paths that I hadn't done. Because I think if you're a fellbagger, you instinctively miss out on actually quite a lot of the charm of Lakeland. And I'm thinking of river walks, of which there's quite a few there. Obviously, the fabulous lakeshore, but some of the remote dalehead. So my choice is one that I think we've called it Dalthwaite Head. It goes from Aeroforce through Glencoyne Park to Douthwaite Head, and then it goes along the valley to Dockray. First of all, Aeroforce. It doesn't matter how many times you go there, I'm afraid. It is absolutely magical, and not least when you get up past the waterfall. I mean, it's like a little kind of Eden garden, isn't it? It's so wonderful. And then Glencoyne Park. Glencoyne Park has more veteran trees, apparently, per square mile than almost anywhere else in the Lake District. It's, it's a woodland pasture, so, you know, it's not a, an actual wood. Magic place. And then Douthwaite Head, well, my enduring love affair with Douthwaite Head continues on and on and on. It's just so beautiful, isn't it? And, and I think the fact that there's nobody there still kind of adds to the... I don't know what it is, if it's beauty or this kind of sense of romantic neglect, but it's just great. And then you've got all these other little things like Lucy's Meadow, that lovely little meadow that's been planted up with trees on the way back. I loved it. And it was just one of so many walks in that valley that if you spend a lot of time in the lakes, it's easy, isn't it, to pass judgment about some of the more popular valleys and walks. But it's been a total rediscovery for me of not only the great fells around there, Helvel in Katstakam. Um, but those places you wouldn't go. And, um, yeah, that, that's my favourite walk. Your mention of Air of Force there just reminded me of many years ago when uh, a friend and I went up the stream side to the top of the woodland, saw the Golden Eagles. They were, oh, really? They were just flapping around in the trees up there. I don't... From Rigandale? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, which isn't that far in golden eagle terms. Because there must have been lots of sea eagles as well as golden eagles in the Lake District because the word heron or urn, which occurs in various places, refers to the sea eagle. And not the heron. Oh, no, it's not the heron. Well, well, well. Heron pike is the sea eagle's pike. Where? No, I didn't urn. know that. Didn't know that. Urn pike. Here's a quiz for you, Mark. I was researching this yesterday. The name Burks. Burks is birch trees. Okay, he's right. Let's move on. We're now heading back in time and to a range of locations, not only in Cumbria, but over the Pennines into Yorkshire as well, to talk mining with a selection of clips about conflict, espionage, and the development of capitalism. So you'll hear from Helen Guy about violent feuds in the lead mines of Swaledale, from Mark Hatton discussing the advances in ballistics offered by the wad mines of Borrowdale, from Tony Vaux on wartime plundering of the Caldbeck Fells, and then back to Mark Hatton again, who explains how German expertise in finance helped develop the then failing English economy. Essentially, this whole area was part of the Wharton estate, which Lord Pomfret inherited in the early 18th century. But he then sold it to a Thomas Metcalf who bought the Manor of Muca for £10,500, no less, and he sublet some of the ground to a mining company, and they discovered a very, very rich deposit of lead which they paid the royalties to Thomas Smith for because he was the landowner. But when Lord Pomfret sold his estate, he retained the mineral rights for the commons and wastes. And he contested this by trying to claim that this area was actually still part of the commons and wastes. It wasn't, but he would not take no for an answer. So he took it to the York courts three times and then down to Westminster on numerous times and he eventually ended up in the Tower of London for debt because he just would not concede with each ruling that the lead was actually on land belonging to Thomas Smith. But the dispute divided the valley because half of the families worked for Pomfret's men and the other half worked for the Thomas Smith party. And there were some huge disputes up here. Men were dragged down hush gutters, dragged out of shafts by their legs. There was fights and it got really, really nasty and it rumbled on and on and on. That's when they built this smelt mill here because up until that point, they were having to take all the lead from here right over onto Askrig Moor. But Lord Pomfret's men actually seized that smelt mill. Then Lord Pomfret built his further up there, and um, it was never an easy relationship, I don't think. There was a lot of competition, flooding out each other's workings and various other things. If you're moulding a cannon or a cannonball, if you line that mould with graphite, you get a far better cast. And this is where graphite starts to become of strategic value to the nation. England's navy had better quality cannons and cannonballs than any other navy. The cannons and cannonballs cast with graphite were stronger. The cannonball travelled further, it was far less likely to shatter, and the cannon itself would last longer and far less likely to break in use, which on a sailing ship or on a warship could devastate the crew around it. And that gave the English Navy a strategic advantage over the French. There was no graphite in France. And so Napoleon was extremely jealous of the graphite that existed in the English kingdom 
knowing that their navy had the advantage. And few people realise that Borrowdale gave England a strategic military advantage that was of critical importance in growing the strength and um, success of the military and uh, winning wars and taking over lands all around the world. The Germans realised that there was tungsten here and they knew that tungsten could be used to make armour plating. And... Uh, they were discovered um, it, around about 1910, prospecting uh, around Carrick Fell, <laughs> and they actually took out quite a lot of tungsten before our government... <laughs> yeah, they really didn't realise that. <laughs> and so at the beginning of the First World War, the Germans had far more armour plating than we did, and it was one of the reasons why we had a disastrous beginning to the First World War, with battleships being sunk because the, the Germans had got hold of this tungsten from Colbeck. I mean, of course, the Germans were, were thrown out. And uh, by the end of the war, we had the world's best stock of tungsten, but it was a bit late. Oh, yes. They came from Augsburg, which was the centre of the banking and merchant um, houses of Europe. And that was where the money, the capital could be raised to take mining to a different level. So taking it from like a little owner-managed business, one chap with his shovel and his bucket, to a fully capitalised industry where you've got patient capital that can invest in long-term returns. Because to drive and add it through to the, um, the mineral vein and to build a smelter and to build all the other infrastructure you need can take years and years before you get payback. No individual can afford to wait that long for payback. You need a company with shareholders. You need bankers with debt and loans. And that's what the Germans brought. Many people recognise the Germans taught the English how to mine. They also taught them how to finance mines. And those skills were used to finance all sorts of other industries in subsequent decades and, and centuries. Let's move on then from war and conflict now to a couple of lovely memories of West Cumbria transport from bygone days. First up, we have Patricia Nolan recalling the bus that took the villages of Estelle to Whitehaven and rather more slowly brought them back home. After that, you'll hear from Joss Naylor about Jack Allison's unofficial school bus. Uh, when you uh, had trips out, rarely, there was Jack's bus that took you to Whitehaven. What was that little narrative there? That was one, our one chance, if you hadn't a car, and most of us hadn't, is to get out of the valley and go to town. And that was Whitehaven, it was the nearest decent-sized town. And we went on always Saturday afternoon. You could go Thursday afternoon, which was market day, and also Saturday afternoon was market day. We always went on a Saturday. And it was quite pally getting on the bus, and, oh, hello, how are you, how are you? And the bus used to stop at road ends on the way down and let the farm people come down there lawn in and get on the bus. And then off we would go... Jack was quite a character, but he, he sort of timed his return on um, first house pictures. So you could actually do your shopping, have something to eat, then go to first house um, cinema, and then go back to the bus. And that made a nice day out. That's normally what we did. But it was a very slow journey home because Jack did like his tipple. Gradually getting towards Eskdale, he'd start stopping probably three or four times and get out and say, parcel for the pub, and then not come back for a quarter of an hour. And it made a very extended return. And then my mother used to get cross because he would try and cover up his return with, oh, I've just heard, he just heard a bit of news, like a terrible accident on 
so-and-so corner to sort of divert you from being cross with him. And somebody would always go, oh, really? And then my mother would get cross because it kind of let him off the hook a bit. Uh, but however, that was our only way of, of travelling, so we did it. Did you walk to school? No, uh, Jack Allison used to take us in his uh, big Chrysler car. By the time we got to God's stage 14 in, <laughs> he used to lose one now and again, like, you know, he used to come round the corner at the bottom of the big hill that come round of Gosford. He used to put his foot down and he used to swing round that corner and if there's too much weight on the door, it would maybe fly up and they'd run it two, we'd end up in dyke. And then he would, he would just load them up again. <laughs> Very robust when they're oh, young. They, were, they like, bounced. They bounced, aye. Uh, that, that to do. Yeah, fabulous. That's uh, Joss there remembering um, a slightly bumpy school journey. <laughs> Do you know, I know the actual bend itself and I can visualise it happening. They, they bounce at that age. <laughs> They do. Well, of course, the big publishing sensation this year, John, is uh, Joss's book, which I see me reviewed. Yes, a fantastic book. Absolutely loved it. Um, I mean, Vivian Crowe, who has done the words, I think has done a marvellous job of capturing his character, his intelligence, um, all aspects of him, and and that wonderful bonhomie that exists between all the fell-running community. Uh, Thanks to the pandemic and everything, I've, I've, I've read a lot more books in the last 12 months than I've read before, and that's, that's up amongst my favourite three books of the year, shall we say. <laughs> it is, it's great, isn't it? And I think you're right, it does kind of capture his spirit. I think we were really impressed, weren't we? I mean, his care and love for that valley. We talked about it at the time. He's cleared this large area of the fell there of Bracken. Anybody who goes there will think, oh, why is there no Bracken there? Oh, somebody's gone out with some glyphosate or Roundup and sprayed it on there. But no, he's gone out there with a stick and he's timed his hitting of, of the Bracken perfectly. Before the spore. Before the spore. And it's a huge area. And it harks back to this sense of... Small farmers caring for their land yes. spirit that yes. he inv invoked. He no longer lives there, but he still feels that Greendale is where is where he is. Yeah. It's his soul, and he's expresses it. He builds those walls, he's planted trees, and he's kept the bracken down. He's a kind of steward of the land, really, isn't he? And planting rowan trees and kind of caring for them as well. It was also great fun, and he kept telling us off for all kinds of reasons. So... Um, <laughs> We had a good day and it was nice, actually. We walked with Viv as well. What a great book project to have come up with anyway. Uh, I was quite jealous that I didn't publish it, I have to say. There we go. <laughs> Joss is one of those people who, who loves people. Yeah. He loves to contact with people. He loves solitude. He, he told us all that about the, when he's out on his long runs, he, he's able to take split seconds off where well, you would might sit down for half an hour he'd sit down for 10 seconds <laughs> but he will absorb a place and he just loves it and it was interesting what he said about you having to enjoy and appreciate your own company when you're out on these long yeah. runs as well well, I think that would be my undoing if I was capable of running, but that would be where I'd fall apart. I thought that was really interesting actually because I mean I think it's fair to say we didn't dig too deep in that podcast. But that was a moment when you saw a kind of very reflective character who clearly valued solitude in a, a really fundamental way. I mean, I guess 
I suppose you'd have to, wouldn't you, if you were doing these very, very long runs. And as a farmer as well. You'll know this as a farmer. farmer. Yeah, yeah. Not quite that kind of farmer, but you certainly on your own when you're in farming. A yeah. farmer only meets other farmers when he goes to the auction mark, basically, and they're great social gatherings. So the same with the shepherds' meets in the valleys here. And yeah. the shepherds love to banter together. They, they, they are a community, but they spend 98% of their time alone. It's a tough, tough innings. We will come to Dr. Terry McCormick's piece later, but it comes through the heritage, this independence. Well, fortuitously, uh, we're, we're actually coming to farming right now. So um, moving from Wasdale, we're going back to Estale again. We've got a compilation of clips about farming. So we start with the memories and the wonderful voices of Janet and Noel Baines from Boot. Then you'll hear from Terry McCormick, who you just mentioned, Mark, about the historic Magna Carta moment that was to change the fortunes of Lakeland farming forever. We'll hear from Helen Guy again, this time on the subject of Mooka's wildflower meadows. We'll hear from Joss about the happy loneliness of the long-distance runner, which we just touched on. And then we'll return to Terry McCormick again to discuss the curious case of the disappearing Lakeland farms. Oh, well, we did all sorts of things, uh, cleaning the bayers out and uh, dipping sheep and air timing. We used to put, uh, if it was a wet time, we'd tripods and we used to hang the grass round to dry on these sticks with a hollow in the middle and they used to dry out and it made lovely hay. We had hens and and all sorts of things. You and did you store the hay in loose in the barn in the barn. Yes, we did, and then we got a a baler, a stationary baler, and I used to stand on this big stack and throw it in, and Noel used to be there to tie the string. A stationary baler. Yes. I do know that there were such things. I can visualise them from the early 50s. So that's about that time. Yeah. Gosh. Was it a McCormick or something? Stationary bed, it was a Ross of Lanark. Oh. But the McCormick followed. We used to do some dangerous things, really. I can't believe it. And standing on back of the trailer and throwing, well, muck, as we call it, uh, just throw it onto a spinner an axle with a spinner on. Aye. And, that, and that was to spread it out on the field? Yes. Just threw it onto it and yeah. it spun out. Gosh, yeah. it could have easily slipped. Easy. Easy, it's but it's illegal now. You wouldn't dare. There are no really big stately homes or mansions in the Lake District. Wordsworth used the phrase perfect republic of shepherds and he meant the word republic at that time as in that way, in, the, in a very old-fashioned republican way. No hierarchy, no aristocracy. And uh, this goes back to really key moments in 1619 to 27 when the customary tenure that many of these farmers owned or held their farms under because they had allegiance to the crown and they were going to fight the border wars and those customary tenures were going to be taken away from them in more stable times. And basically they just said these customary tenures are ours to hold and we are not going to give them up. And they actually took the crown to court about them. And it had a seven-year struggle. And when you think about it, some of the key leaders were going back and forth from London, 
depositing papers, making arguments, working with lawyers, and they eventually, they won the case. And that meant that in the Lake District, you've got this cluster, big cluster, 200 plus, 300 at the time, it's come down to 200 now about the farms, of owner-occupiers, proud, independent farmers with their own farm and their own land. And that made a huge difference. And in my own background, which is more to do with Wales, you know that when that system didn't exist, farming disappears because the, the large landlords come in and buy things up. Everything becomes rented. The Forestry Commission comes along when times are tough and says, can we have all your land? We'll plant it up. And they say, oh, yes. But this moment of the Magna Carta moment, 1690 to 26, is a great moment for Lake District fell farming. And this farm would have been one of those farms. These meadows around Muka are designated sites of um, scientific importance and so they are protected. Uh, the farmers here don't start mowing them until all the wildflowers have seeded and that date is set by DEFRA each year. So they're very, very important meadows. And what we're looking at now, we've got the buttercups, we've got the yellow rattle, we've got dandelions, clover, both purple and white. We've got the cranes bill. And if we're really, really lucky, there are orchids in these meadows as well. The meadows here, and indeed now all down Swaledale, have been absolutely magnificent this year. They do attract people from all over the country to come and see them because they know they've got a very limited time. And in early July, as you have said, the farmers do, alas, need to come in and cut them down because this is the winter fodder for, for their farm animals, to see them through what can be an absolute brutal winter in the Pennines. The hay that will come from this... Sweet. Oh beautiful if they get it perfect it is idyllic you could always eat it yourself <laughs> <laughs> have you got just one nugget of advice for uh, an aspiring fell runner for any young fell runner make sure he can enjoy his own company and get into the way of life around him when he's out when you run the way on your own you're taking things in and it's the time to think and you can think and put your life right when you're away out on your own. And I'll tell you what, it's a great way to be. We're just running along, taking things in, relaxing, and switch anything that's bad out of your mind and come back a better person. Wordsworth, in a sense, took on that uh, mantle himself. And one of the things that hit me between the eyes was his poem, The Brothers, which is based in Ennerdale. Uh, written in 1800, just as he'd arrived in the Lake District, is all about the tragic loss of a farming family, the Eubanks, generations of families who'd all disappeared, all gone, and what a sad sort of story it was. That's a very simple version of it. I took this for granted, and then when I started to look at this more closely, I just don't know why, but I had this twinge, and I said, oh, what was the actual farm? I looked up the farm, my house, OK, I followed it through. I discovered that my house was a really successful working farm that carried on working through the 19th century. You go to Ennerdale Churchyard, you see these wonderful great big tombstones with all the family members, the Flemings, all on there. And now it's a National Trust farm. And I thought, well, this is very strange where you should uh, make that farm into something which illustrates the, the point you want to make. Now, Wordsworth was doing that a lot. And he was doing it with Michael especially, the other poem, a uh, great poem of 1800. Now, you can say, that's fine, he's creative, he's doing his own thing, he's got the creative liberty to do that. But to me, that is corrosive, and it's actually diminishing 
Mm. It's not accurate. Most listeners or readers, they're probably reading from away. They don't know anything else. Wordsworth is an expert as far as they're concerned, and they're just taking this full on. So they're taking that in. Now, that's a lot of readers over time. And uh, that goes all the way through there because Wordsworth then becomes this, himself becomes the touchstone of truth and of vision for nature street fell farming, even though he was uh, convinced apparently that it was about to disappear. So Terry's hypothesis is that Wordsworth effectively either romanticises, over-romanticises Lakeland farming, or he kind of creates this case that it's on the way out. And Terry looks into the farms in question that Wordsworth's written about and, and says, well, they were doing great then, and actually they're still going great now. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, this conversation totally changed my mind, really, about how I think about farming, in that he just felt that really it's been massively misrepresented for generations by artists, I suppose, uh, writers, really, in, in Cumbria. And it actually includes Wainwright in this. Farming is pretty much absent from Wainwright's work. Anyway, Mark, over to you. Yeah, well, I think... Uh, the, the resilience of the Fells farming is an innate one that goes back way back in time and it's part of the DNA of the farming community. And you can see that, saw that in Joss, he's got a particular DNA in himself, but other farmers you encounter, they face the arduous conditions, they cope with the fluctuations in the market and they make the changes... The uplands mean something, and we got this from Julia Aglenby last year. Uh, again, this sense of continuity uh, and resolve. We're moving on now to an interview we did with Richard Leaf, uh, Chief Executive of the Lake District National Park Authority, back in November. We've got a couple of clips. The first one considers how the park manages to steer a path with so many disparate uh, and often conflicting interests. And the second clip sees Richard reject a congestion charge. So let's hear from Richard Leaf. That's the nature of looking after the National Park, I think, is reconciling these different demands on its use. And if I were to summarise it, I would say it's a, it's a question of finding the sweet spot between all of these things. And... It's very definitely a place that's not at the extremes. It's not all about the visitors and not the residents. It's not all about farmers and not the wildlife. It's not all about rewilding and no farming. It's a combination of all of those things somewhere in the middle. Although there isn't an actual middle. Although the actual middle is a, is a movable feast and, and our job is to steer that middle towards whatever direction we feel attention is most needed in the park. There's always a nice tension in the debate. So if people from whatever community there is are feeling squeezed or not getting enough attention or action in the plan, they will let us know. But fundamentally, it's about looking at the evidence and every five years we produce uh, a thing called the State of the Park Report, which gives us a comprehensive understanding of all the data and shows us how well the park is performing against uh, a set of nationally 
produce metrics. So we spend a lot of time focused on that middle to work out what's happening in the park, what do we need to do in response to that. So in your time as Chief Executive Officer, have you observed changes, movements in that midpoint Yes, I have seen changes along the way. When I first started, there was a feeling that the economy of the park is overlooked, hadn't been paid attention to. Now it feels as though people are saying to us, you pay too much attention to the economy and you need to pay more attention to conservation and looking after the fabric of the national park. At the same time, we've seen real ebbs and flows in the farming community and how they have done in society as a whole. And and right now is a very critical time for them as we have exited the European Union and the payment system is going to start to change radically. So I've certainly seen quite a lot of flux in that and staying ahead of that and making sure that we've got the right balance, doing the right things for all the sectors of the park that we look after from communities to visitors to the economy to conservation and of course to farming making sure that we've got those things properly addressed in the park is is the challenge and everybody has a view on that and in a sense of course everybody is right it's their park it's not ours what we have to do is try and make those judgment calls and ensure that on the whole, we're moving forward in the right way. David came up with a related question. Is the Lake District National Park Authority, alongside Cumbria County Council, looking at congestion charges, which might help alleviate pressure either in selected valleys or in the whole park? We're not looking at congestion charging for the park. It would be a very big and complicated thing to do and may even deter some of our visitors from coming in the first place. So we're more interested in pursuing a strategy that tries to get people to not bring a car in the first place or if they do, park it in one place and leave it there. Uh, So that's Richard Leaf. Interesting to hear an acknowledgement there that the balance may have shifted too far towards the interests of the economy and that the park perhaps needs to pay more attention to, to conservation and what he calls the fabric of the park. I don't think I'd expected him to be explicit about that, really, but I think that would sum up lots of people's views. I think it sums up mine. 100%. I'm not saying conservation is the be-all and end-all, but it does get the impression that it was um, being brushed aside slightly in favour of commercialism. Um, in recent years, you know, when we had the uh, talk about uh, zip wires and gondolas and if there's a swing away from that, I would welcome it. I mean, he's, he's got so many different audiences that he has to listen to. It's because mm. he's got all the local communities that he has to keep on side. He's got people who've moved to the area that he has to keep on side, who, who bring demands that perhaps conflict with the people who've been living here for generations. Uh, and then he's also got the rest of the world mm. because everybody thinks the Lake District belongs to them and they know what's right for the Lake District. And he's got a really fine balancing act to, to, to perform. The only other thing I would pick up from that interview, which is the second clip there that we just heard, was we explicitly asked about the congestion yeah. charge idea that gets floated around, um, not least by myself, I have to say. And he explicitly rejected it for the park itself and also for individual valleys. A fortnight after that, The Guardian ran a news story suggesting that he was, he was pro it. In fact, his quote was, 
the park is now actively considering closing the most popular valleys to cars during peak season. Uh, So actually, he didn't say congestion charging. That was a bit of naughtiness on The Guardian's behalf. But it shows where their thinking's going. Another couple of things to say just before we move on about the National Park positive things that they've done. They trialled these park and ride buses there was one in Wasdale, there was one from Cockermouth uh, into Buttermere, starting to look at other potential policies that they might be able to expand in the future. And they were partnerships. One of them was with Stagecoach, the one at uh, Cockermouth. Easy to kind of bash the National Park, I think, but really good to see two, okay, only small initiatives, but trialling something. Yeah. We haven't seen much of that in the recent past. So I think that's really encouraging. And the other thing that's happened within the last couple of weeks is, of course, Ullock Moss Car Park has been rejected by the National Park. I don't think people thought that was going to happen. And it's not the only one. Coniston as well, um, second one there. And I believe the Oldswater, you know, there's a, a big temporary car park at the north end of Oldswater. That's three that have been rejected. Now, whether that signals a different way of thinking a different mindset among the planning authority who knows but i guess if it does and if there's a kind of idea that actually we need to think a bit deeper about an integrated travel policy i guess we would support that could you imagine the lake district being on a par with london for public transport when we visit my sister in she lives in stoke newington Want to go into town? We go stand outside her house, and a bus comes past. And if we miss it, there's another one in two minutes. Yeah, oyster card yeah. covers the whole of the. Yeah, t- yeah. Now oh. imagine stepping out of here and waiting for a bus. Because it would solve so many issues yeah. Yeah. in one fell swoop. It would, and the way to do it, you know, and I'll bang on about it forever, is a congestion charge. You can only spend the money from a, a traffic congestion charge on transport. Yes. It is ring-fenced for that. So you've suddenly got this huge amount of money that you can invest mainly in buses, but you could do it on cycle paths. I think my understanding is you could actually do it on, you know, FixFLs could receive a large chunk of it as well because that's still transport. (laughs) Yes, yes. I was thinking on the way here, several years ago with um, uh, one of the local walking groups, we uh, did a lovely walk up to Grisdale Town and then down to uh, the head of Thirlmere and then caught the bus back to our cars in uh, Grasmere. For what we paid between us in bus fares, we could have rented a minibus for the day. The fares at the moment are are prohibitive. They're unfair. (laughs) They're unfair. Um, But they're going to dissuade people from abandoning their their own transport. That's my one pun of the whole evening. (laughs) Or or afternoon. (laughs) Okay, well, we're moving on now to um, drug habits. Oh, my topic. (laughs) We're moving back in time to the Romantic era. This is Wordsworth, Southey and Coleridge and their frequently overlooked wives, sisters and daughters. Uh, His author Kathleen Jones speaking about laudanum addiction and uh, wider health problems among the group. Laudanum was really the only effective painkiller that was available at the time. It was a distillation of opium and alcohol wasn't very pleasant to drink, so people used to wash it down with brandy uh, or port to make it more palatable. It was really a drug of the middle and upper classes because very poor people couldn't afford it. It was also highly addictive, which no one realised at the time, but 
there is a huge number of very famous literary figures who were addicted to laudanum. Coleridge had uh, problems with his health when he was at school. He was given um, laudanum for pain, and then he began to take it regularly for his health problems. He had a lot of psychosomatic problems, uh, trauma related to childhood and probably from being abused at boarding school. Sarah Coleridge said that he had terrible dreams in the night when he used to wake up screaming. And he took laudanum more and more frequently. And it got to the point where he became ill if he stopped taking laudanum, which of course is the withdrawal symptoms. And so it became a vicious cycle. And Dorothy Wordsworth was also fairly dependent on laudanum. She had terrible problems with her teeth, uh, which laudanum helped to ease the pain. She also suffered all her life as did William, from what we now call psychosomatic illnesses. They were both very nervous. They had problems sleeping, Dorothy particularly. She suffered a lot from loneliness, from the childhood trauma that she'd suffered, from frustration of not having uh, a partner, a lover, children. She was desperately jealous of Wordsworth's wife Mary and her children. She suffered a lot psychologically and laudanum was the only remedy that you could take and she took more and more of it and she too became dependent. It's another form of opium basically, uh, more common today than the raw opium that was uh, bought in this area back at the end of the 17th, 18th centuries. In the 18th century it was called Kendall Black Drop. Uh, it was a very famous, very powerful distillation of raw opium mixed with alcohol. Kendall Black Drop there, and a reminder that behind the poetry and the prose, there was a lot of illness, sadness, and poverty. Right, we're moving on to conservation and farming now. Uh, so this is a selection of clips covering the frustrations of centralised funding for work in the rural economy, also the complications and nuances of balancing nature and farming. So we start with Danny Teasdale from the Ellswater CIC, talking about why funding is needed locally. Then we hear from John Dunning, founder of the T-Bay Services, about the ongoing failure of government to decentralise Next, you'll hear from Joe Clayton about why planting trees isn't enough. You also need to nurture them. Next up, 21-year-old Matt Sowerby, who we mentioned earlier on. We spoke to Matt during our Young People of Cumbria podcast, and he argues the perception of a cultural divide between farmers and environmentalists is often overstated. And we close with Danny again on a note of optimism. If you were Prime Minister for a day, what one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria? The one thing that I would do, I think I would devolve the, the funding locally and let local people make decisions that are most fit into that landscape. I mean, what, one of the biggest things I think that would help this would be if there was a local Natural England office or a, a local officer that could distribute the funding locally. I could apply to that person. They then get to know me and they know that I'm trustworthy and then I'm going to do what it is that I say I'm going to do rather than me trying to apply to, to central government to a completely generic system and whoever I'm applying to, this means nothing to them. They've got no idea what a CIC is. They've got no idea the catchment work that we're doing. Whereas if you can bring it back locally, that is what I would like to see, ideally. Bring devolution. that devolution. 
we have sadly allowed our affairs to be far too centralised in recent years and none of this appears like actually reaching out to the national parks, to Cumbria, places like this. Indeed, the whole process of bringing um, the regions into determining part of their own future, not all of it, part of their own future, particularly on the economic side, has made no progress at all. And uh, certainly in the uplands, it has regressed disastrously. There's a lot of talk now about planting trees and creating new forests and, and that's brilliant, but I only have heard people saying, we're going to plant a tree or we're going to need to plant more trees, but it's not about planting trees, it's about growing trees. So those trees have to live, otherwise you've wasted so much energy and money. So the tree needs to be planted and that's probably the easiest bit. And then it's got to be looked after. So whether that's fencing um, or management, pest control, because there's rabbits, there's lots of animals that will, will eat saplings, but those saplings have got to be looked after until they grow to a point when they can look after themselves. Um, I'm from five generations of farmers. Uh, our farm stopped operating around the time that I was born, um, as a lot of farms in the area have done. James Rebank has talked about this incredibly eloquently and in a way which very much echoes a lot of what I hear just talking to my grandparents um, about their experience of farming and the way that farming has changed. You've got less and less farmers in the area and those farmers are working incredibly long hours um, and as a result their voices are rarely heard. So there's this perception of this massive cultural divide between farmers and environmentalists, for example, that uh, is just getting more and more entrenched. But that completely ignores the fact that so many farmers see themselves as custodians of the land um, and stewards of the land. While there are differences and, and some reforms do need to be made in farming as reforms need to be made in every part of society, there is so much opportunity for collaboration if we're able to see the farming community as the ally to the environmental movement that it really could be. There are a few landowners who are not quite there yet. Uh, how do you see that evolving? I would leave them be, basically. If that's their belief and that's, that's their tradition, and ultimately every farm is different, every farm's got a different financial circumstance as well, and interest, and some, some people just do not have an interest in that and they don't wish to do that. I think there are enough people now that are, that are on board. I would imagine that we're working with about 70% of the catchment. Closing there with Danny Teasdale telling us that he's working with 70% of farmers in the Oldswater catchment. That's a really great bit of news, isn't it? That's a tremendous accolade for his personality. He's a local lad. He started off as a garage mechanic, but he's a local lad. And uh, he's been trusted in and taken into the psyche of the local community and they see that he's not taking something away, he's giving them something really special that they can identify with. The question is, why does Danny work, as it were, isn't it? And it's because he manages to straddle farming and conservation. He is a farmer still, but he's also a conservationist with a great passion for re-wiggling becks for planting hedges for creating these scrapes these wetlands and I guess you have to be able to take people with you to do this stuff don't you and he's able to do that I mean not least because he's a lovely bloke right and he's full of passion and energy and all of this but 
you almost saw the dominoes falling through the valley, don't you? Where you see your neighbor, what your neighbor's doing, and you suddenly think, actually, this isn't George Monbio telling me off. This is Danny, and this is my next door neighbor, and they've suddenly got these hedges, and they suddenly got wading birds back. And absolutely amazing because I, I noticed that James posted up a great egret, or one of those white birds, uh, being shooed off by a heron. <laughs> amazing, and he was so thrilled by seeing it. And rightly so. It shows if you create the right habitat, bird life, butterflies, frogs, they'll all come back. James has had lapwings on his land. And I don't know about you, John. I mean, the last time I saw a lapwing in the Lake District... Oh, you, you should come to the Yorkshire Dales more often. We, we watched a flock of 100 after we'd done their school run this morning. <laughs> they have lorry loads coming across on holiday to the Lake District now of, yeah. of birds. Yeah. It's <laughs> funny you picked on the great egret, though, because I think the... Egrets are, uh, are they not a sign of, of, of global warming? They, they don't really belong this far north in, in our hemisphere, do they? No. I think the great and little egrets, which we're getting in our neck of the woods as well. Solway get them, I know. Um, I, 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 my understanding is that they're moving north. As the temperatures improve, yeah. we'll all be walking around in bikinis soon. Well, I look forward to that, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can I make a plea that when we next record this podcast, we, we don't do the bikinis? <laughs> Well, I'm going to take mine off right now. <laughs> <laughs> Another couple of interesting things that, that got picked up there then was this idea that trees aren't just for Christmas, as it were, which is to say we're all going a little bit tree crazy at the moment. What Joe was saying in the podcast was you've got to look after them really for the first five years. They're not unlike children. If you don't look after them, they'll all be gone. Yeah, they are definitely... Just as you say, like children, they have a, a very vulnerable stage in their life and they've got to get some bark to them to bark back. <laughs> oh, I got another you, joke in. That was number two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I believe there's, there's, there's also quite a resurgence in the idea that um, if, you, if you leave the land alone and just protect it from grazing sheep or deer or rabbits or whatever, the trees come back of their own accord eventually. John Dunning and Danny both acknowledging this the same fact, really, which is government has centralised this funding to such an extent that there's either there's nothing to go around locally to support some of these projects, or it's so cumbersome. And when in the old days you would have a local representative of yeah. the Environment Agency or DEFRA, it doesn't really exist anymore. And it's making it really difficult because the reason that Danny works, to go back to that... It's because the local knowledge of the landscape and the people drives success. Yeah, and there's a complete dissociation from whatever's happening in, in Whitehall. Mm. You know, Cumbria, where's that? Let's give that a few beans and, uh, yeah. you know, it, it needs people on the ground locally who know what's going on to argue the case at a more localised level to get, to get that kind of necessary funding. But you need to trust, Yeah, John's point was, there's no real trust at a community level or even at a regional level to run our own affairs. And it's, an, it's a level of trust that comes from, from knowing an area or knowing the people who are responsible for it. And if there is that big yawning gap between the two, it's, it's not going to work, is it? And then another positive note, I think, that came out of it was 21-year-old, um, I think he was 21 at the time, Matt Salby there, who talks about this perceived entrenchment of opposing views farming versus conservation is just saying 
there's so much commonality, which comes up so often when we do these podcasts, actually, fortunately, whether it's somebody like James or, or whether it's somebody like Danny. Harking back to your original uh, point earlier, John, about we live in quite a fractious, divisive age, I think it's fair to say, Mark, isn't it, that in our conversations, really on either side of that non-existent divide, I would say, there's a lot of understanding of your opposition, in inverted commas, you know? Yeah, there is. Yeah, people who've got uh, uh, strong views have it for what they believe are for the right reasons. And if they're talking with people who share a love of the place they have enough flexibility. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's so much love for the Lake District or for Cumbria. I think you're willing to give quite a lot more leeway yeah. than you might if you're arguing on Twitter, say. Yeah, exactly, yes. I think the, the social media thing has... It's spoilt a lot of sensible conversation. Yeah. You can't beat the whites of the eye, as it were. Being together, being able to seed that you're not necessarily always right, and to respect somebody else's local knowledge or understanding or experience, like what we've seen with Danny there, what a transformation he's brought to that area, and that's only because he's worked and success is leading to another success. Right, well, we're nearing the end of our roundup of the year now, so let's talk about home, about what home means, about how Lakeland has become home for so many people. First of all, we're here from Martin Webster and Marie-Pierre Gaudes, former wardens of Skidder House, about leaving the place they loved for the last time. We hear from Stephen Wright about experiencing a calling in Windermere. We'll hear from Terry McCormick about finding camaraderie and brotherhood among wallers on the fell. We'll hear from Patricia Nolan about carrying a magnetic attachment to Estale and the fells throughout her life. We'll hear from Joe Clayton and Daryl Kelbrick about the continued excitement of living in their woods. And finally, from 80-something-year-old Noel Baines, we'll hear about his beloved Estale and why all he wants is to do it all over again. So the time came when you felt the need for a transition in your life. What spurred you at the time? What spurred me at the time? Um, I, I would say, first of all, my age approaching uh, retirement uh, and uh, imagining myself, let's say, over 65 uh, and still carrying wood in and who wants to come up from any city in any place, London or whatever, and see a 70-year-old bloke sitting there. (laughs) 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 And uh, I didn't sort of picture myself in that environment. But more importantly is a successor. There was no way I was going to leave, or we were going to leave, lock the door and say, that's it then. And the hostel finished. No. We already knew a younger couple who'd shown a lot of interest in the place. And we already knew that he was a lover of the outdoors, and we already knew uh, that he worked for the YHA. He'd got experience. So, saying goodbye, uh, Marie, how did you sort of mostly take that on? Um, although I, I enjoyed living 
uh, at the hostel. I always knew I wasn't going to be there uh, until I died, obviously. And uh, I thought the time was right, and especially when we knew we, we were going to pass the business to this young couple. So I felt reassured that... Uh, <sighs> our baby was in right hands. <laughs> so you don't, don't want to shoot. No, no, that that was a very poignant moment. Yeah, I understood. Did you have a feeling of loss, Martin? Uh, most definitely. Still do. I do have a particular early memory of the lake. Oh, yes. I mean, it would be the first time I came here when I was 15 years old. And it was that age, you know, that, oh, gosh, adolescence, please, never again. Any road up, to cut a long story short, I was on a coach trip with my mum and dad and we were going to the uh, Kyles of Butte. So we stopped off at the lakes on the way north. This was before the motorway. And we stayed in a and b in the coach tour near Windermere. And I woke up that next morning. I was on a coach full of all old people as they were to me then at the age of 15. I had far better things I wanted to do at the age of 15 than being a coach load of 60-odd-year-olds, including my parents. And I woke up in the morning and I looked out my bedroom window and the sound of the Lake District waking up, the hills beyond, the jackdaws calling, the smell of the air, the chimney smoke. And I remember saying to myself then, I will live here someday. I'm going to live here. I would go so far as to say it felt like a calling. It was like you will live here. A couple of decades later, it happened. I think there's a sort of egalitarianism about the work. Um, you know, there's basically no bullshit. It's all about what you do, the work you do, the quality of the work you do, whether your stock are good or whether your walls are good, or how you've managed that job. Is it tidy or isn't it tidy? And I just love that kind of... Let's drop all this stuff about status, drop all this stuff about what you're earning. Just think about the work at hand and the quality of it. I think that comes through really strongly. Apart also, I have to say that I'd spent a, a lifetime working in museums and um, it was a relief to work with farming men. When I got here, it was just, uh, I was taken care of. They were great and uh, just comradeship and, uh, you know, that st stayed with me. It's a society that you don't yeah. get anywhere else in life. No, that's right. And also, uh, I, what I found was I had a warm welcome. You know, once I started working, and I was just, I was kind of in, you know, and then no one thought, oh, you're, you're a strange bod, you're, wherever you come from or anything, you just get on with it and, yeah. you know, have conversations like we've had today with Richard Mason there and other places in these valleys and the farmer would stop, park, park the quad bike, you'd have a bit of crack and carry on and then when I was interviewing farmers I was taken in you know late evening bacon butties tea sit down you know embrace you warm embrace lovely lovely people so your teacher strong on the three R's got you through your 11 plus and you went from Estelle High to the heights of Keswick and flourished there and there's this quote in the book I left this valley that day, returned only for holidays, but I discovered in the years to come that I have carried it inside me. That place and that time, ever since. So what is that that's held within you over all these years? It's a combination of things, I think. It's an attachment to the 
to the valley and to this fantastic, beautiful scenery that's um, remained unspoiled, really. Eskdale has remained very much the same. Um, and to the way of life. It is, it is so different from the cities that I've lived in. And also, when you're sort of dragged away at 11 and then you come back for holidays, home keep, remains a special place for you. That um, you're always looking forward to it, and then you're always sad to leave, and it remains very, just remains very special in your mind. And I think it was the way of life, and the people, very genuine people. I'm always a mountain person. If I go on holiday, I don't particularly go to the sea. I would always choose mountains and lakes. So wherever you've lived are, are places that you've lived, mm. but this is home. Yeah, this is home. My mother's buried here in the St Catherine's Church, very beautiful church. Um, by the river and there's room on top for me <laughs> there's room on the headstone <laughs> just a little space yes a little space and it's just it just has that magnetic quality i think a lot of people feel it actually it's just a very special place you've been here 13 years how does it make you feel operating in this environment and living here um i feel like a part of it and know it so well. I feel like I know every tree and emerging sapling and it gives me a great nurturing potential. I think having something to nurture is, is really important in life. And so, yeah, I feel a part of it. Yeah, I mean, for me, I just, I feel privileged that I'm in this position. I have to pinch myself sometimes because I never thought I would. It's a privilege and uh, a joy and it, it's exciting still. Even after 13 years, I'm still full of excitement. And I think that for me, that's kind of, uh, you know, I'm 50 now and I've got more excitement than I've had ever in my life. So uh, that's how it makes me feel. Fantastic, isn't it? No, you've wandered these uh, pastures and up the valley and round and the becks. Have you got a special place? No, not really a special place. It's all good. Can't think about else it's any better. <laughs> you know, I think we've been far enough. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been to London. I haven't been any further down than Nottingham. And up as far as my leg. <laughs> I know, quite happy. I just wish I could do it all again. Well, some emotional moments there, Mark. Uh, that moment with Marie outside Skidder House, I think both of us were slightly lost for words, weren't we? Yeah, you can understand being in a place like that. It is such a world apart. Remotest house in England, they say, but Martin and Marie really took it to their heart, that place. And, of course, as we know, it, the property's on the market at the moment, so I mm. don't know what its future is. Still unsold. Ah, any listeners who've got some money? 1.25 million. I understand but they've it, had a lot of viewings, haven't they? Oh, well, that's it. I mean, you feel sorry for the estate agents, don't you? Traipsing all the way over there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. You have to absolutely love reclusive living to, to even consider that it's not not for me i mean I... But you could tell the, the marie were crying like she did and martin they just they loved it there it was a refuge when people were on walks on the cumbria way and exploring the wild heather moors it's a, a world apart and it's a place of joy 
John, would you um, would you take over Skidder House at all? Um, it would be the school run that broke me down. I think at the end of the day, it's uh, I mean it's a wonderfully idyllic idea. I really, you know, um. So the theme in those clips really was about a kind of calling to Lakeland, or I think Mark used the word refuge, which I think actually is um, is right as well. Stephen Wright there is very eloquent, I think, about this. You know, he comes on this trip up to the lakes and he stays in Windermere and he feels that he's come home, effectively. And many years later, he makes it home. That theme came up time and time again, really, and not least with Terry McCormick, you know, who'd spent many years in kind of academia and uh, the Wordsworth Trust, I think, hadn't he? But then he found this home on the hills doing the walling with, um, with farmers. One does come across it a lot. You and I are in that boat as well, aren't we, Mark? You know, we, we found home here. Absolutely. We both come from the south, as it were, and we've found that this is an environment that is... There's an innate sense of place here, that every day is a wonderful day to be out in the fresh air. There's such a mix in the mosaic of landscape. You just want to keep going out and enjoying it and feeling... Life will go on because you're part of it. It's lovely. John, your readers, obviously, buy not just into the magazine, but, you know, it is there, isn't it? That latent emotional attachment to this place. It's almost like a cult of Lakeland, you know, and there's a great proprietorial thing, as I said before, about, you know, people don't just take the Lake District to heart, but they believe it is theirs. And I think that's yeah. probably why people fight so passionately to protect it and conserve yeah. it as well. Mm. Um, I often find myself preferring to, you know, I'm quite glad I live in Yorkshire because I can look on the Lake District in awe continually and never take it for granted and um, always appreciate it in that sense. Wherever I've lived in the past and, and when you come to regard a place as home, you stop looking at it the same way. You don't admire it in the same way. You don't appreciate it quite in the same way. You, f- you forget, and uh, Lakeland will always be something to aspire to, but never quite attain, because that would spoil the magic. I love the sense of being able to go and stand on a given high point and just look all around and know everything you're looking at, down across yes, the Isle of Man yeah. or down to the lake, yeah. down to uh, Ingleborough and... Uh, and up into Scotland, oh, it's just magic. I do remember, actually, when I was a child coming up to the Lake District, and I remember just being really kind of sad that there was an end to the Lake District, that you would see, you know... <laughs> the, the, I loved the views most of all when you were in the real middle of it and you, you yeah. could see it going on and on for miles. Uh, and I remember thinking, I mean, I guess particularly on the coastal fringes, but also I would imagine probably on the on the Far Eastern Fells, thinking, oh... That's the end of the lakes. But I mean, actually, of course, you know, as I get older, I feel exactly the same way as you. You know, it's like, wow, there's Scotland and there's Morecambe Bay and there's, well, best of all, there's the Pennines, you know. <laughs> um, that's just more magic country that I can go out and romp over. Scotland goes on forever. <laughs> we, had, we had a sense of that when we did the coast-to-coast walk and, you know, we're walking east and we'd, before we got down, dropped down to Horswater, we were saying do we really want to go and walk the rest of this? Or we should just turn around and spend two, the full two weeks in the Lake District. Very good. Uh, the other bit of those clips that I liked, by the way, was... Um, so we were with Noel and Janet Baines in, um, in Boot, John, and um, I think Mark's question was something like, what's your favourite view or something? Yes. And, and Noel just said, well, it's just the view out the window, isn't it? And we were looking and at it. And we thought, oh, 
God, that's lovely. Could you imagine if that is it, you know? That's... He had a Rembrandt picture, which is the picture out through his window, looking across to Stanley Force. Yeah. What more could you ask? With well, the green crag rising beyond it. And, well, it was a complete picture, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was. But what a lovely thing, though. I mean, because I think, I mean, I've got quite a nice view out my window, but... I'm sure I would still say somewhere else, <laughs> knowing me. It's contentment is a, a gift, you know. Oh, no. Uh, uh, one day. Okay, well, we're coming to the end now, and we'll close with um, a fairly recent clip. Uh, this was lovely, Mark. This is the poem, Down the Lawning. Um, I can't say it properly because I'm not Cumbrian. With Elaine Nelson. Yes, Elaine Nelson, who read this to us. Uh, absolutely beautiful. This was part of our Christmas podcast this year. But even when I was editing it, I actually found myself really moved. She said as much, actually, didn't she? She said when, when the Grasmere players read it out that she gets quite emotional. And I can see why. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful bit of writing. And I think she reads it exquisitely and... Um, yeah, well, that's us signing off. Any final words from you, Mark? Well, it's been a wonderful year. I've loved being out with you, David. It's been fantastic. Country Striders is a joy to my life, and I'm looking forward to 2022 with great enthusiasm. Down Lon in the came, just breath its Mary with Joe that she wed Lammas year, and their lal lad in her arm. Moon was low and clear above Silver Howe, and mists writhing up from lake, and light sharp and silver as tis of a winter dusk with the night beginning to break on the darkening dale. There were no mysteries around Mary and Joe. They smiled at us going by. Grand evening, Joe called out, and Posty said, Aye. And our Libby, she ran to set them a bit on road as Mary turned and showed Ben sleeping, soft and warm. Up hunting style they went, and the young moon dropped over Silver Howe, and the night shut down. And now we saw them no more. Their footsteps, after a while, died into mists and darkness. Up Lonin they came, late in the evening. We never heard them come, though night was still as a sheltered tarn is. Only a whisper from the Lal Beck near at hand, splashing down in spate. Quiet they came, and late. And none said out as they passed us. Just so, a young lass, walking wearily, and a man... Like Joe, or not so like maybe, and the two of them bent over a bairn asleep. And as they went through the dark trees and lake mists, there was light. Up Lonin they came, just Braithet's lass, we a man on winter's night, just Braithet's Mary, who else in the Christmas night? Rating on top of Scout Scar. I own it. You you own it, you mm. say? <laughs> well, that wasn't it. The Kendra, so, Kendra Race Club. You, you own Kendra Race Club? Ke- well, Kendra that's Rice different Rice. from Damson growing, yes, anyway. It is, yes. <laughs> <That's> diversification. <laughs> <laughs> we're on more or less the uh, road back down to Patterdale. Yep. 
and then up through the old mine Wickens and over Dake Pass. Oh, you didn't include Red Tarn? No, we didn't put the towns oh, in there. Aye, got that all Forgive wrong. Me. Uh, you're not much good on these jobs, boy. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> the common theme that, that ran through all these was kind of this sense of Lake District people finding, discovering it, and, and I'm actually... Visitors. Visitors. Wow. <laughs> Bloody off-comers. <laughs> the off-comers. Yeah. And they've gone off. <laughs>